Hey guys, this is Samuel with another episode of Learnings where I take notes and add my commentary on multiple hours of YouTube videos that I watch just for the sake of self-education. I often cover two or three interviews, seminars, etc. under the ideas of giving, getting, and the future where the two meet one another. I got a great feeling about this episode given the videos I decided to review, but speaking of reviews, let's go over this week. This last week, I set two very simple basic goals for myself that were rather huge, but still simple. When I have a bigger goal, I find it more easy to focus. However, I did get sidetracked for fucking hours at a time on maybe two different projects. For example, going on a date is on my list. Going on one date on, on A goals of A goals for this month. Given maybe five out of seven of my other A and B goals were finished so far, and I haven't even gotten started on this one, uh, I spent maybe hours researching Tinder on Tuesday, and I have been swiping every single night, hitting up whoever is closest. Interestingly enough, I wrote a remix about the reason this is such a high priority to me all of a sudden. It's much deeper than one may think. It's a, it's a very internal of a reason. I feel weird expressing these thoughts on a podcast, but I mean, they are what they are. <laughs> nothing, nothing gets me through this honestly other than compartmentalization. I mean, I compartmentalize pretty much everything or at least 90% of the things I seem to go through. They never seem to express themselves emotionally. They kind of just wash over me and I feel like, like there, it's like this objective wave and I, I, I walk away looking wet, but I feel super dry. I don't think that's unhealthy, but I do think the way I feel... The, but I do think the way I do it with relationships is really starting to hurt the way I look at them. That's the main reason I'm on Tinder again all of a sudden. I'm scared if I don't do something with someone, no matter what it is, it's going to mess with the way I look at girls. What I'm wondering is what degree to which that fear can be just transformed into love and faith and abundance because living in fear is what kills people from the inside out, honestly. But I'll figure it out. I figure everything out. Regardless, I did write and record and edit my own remix on this topic to Girls Like You by Maroon 5 and Cardi, Cardi B. I think it turned out spectacular, but that's just me. It's basically my way of saying to pretty much any girl listening, look, I'm a workaholic, girls just want to have fun, and what's fun to me is work. Because after my last relationship, I basically filled up all of my time with nothing at all but professional and personal development. So basically, I want you to teach me how to have fun, preferably without alcohol, which I clumsily forgot to specify. Other than that, my actual goals for the week were chewing my way through this YouTube course and creating the rest of my insights video for this month in August. Give myself some time to create more. I have an interesting project for YouTube that I'll be creating in the meantime and afterward. I did get all of this done ex except the, e the editing, which will take probably the rest of today after I visit my grandma for lunch. Video one is Jeff and Mark Bezos' rare interview at Summit. Jeff Bezos is definitely, in my opinion, not just someone ideal to look up to as a business strategist. I mean, as far as innovation and creativity, his strong suits aren't exactly that as present as other guys, like per se Elon Musk, and let's go with Tim Cook, because a lot of people can't seem to grasp the fact that Steve Jobs left an impact. I mean, he started Apple, but he's fucking dead. Like, I don't know, man. I think Tim deserves more credit as time passes. Jeff Bezos is definitely amazing as far as strategy. You can find out about that in Brad Stone's book, The Everything Store, about Jeff Bezos and the story of Amazon. I think with his with this video, it goes to show he's also a great mentor as far as work-life balance, or harmony as he likes to call it. His brother is probably just as interesting as he is, maybe not as inquisitive, but definitely insightful. 
I love how Marx just started by saying people just refer to him as Jeff's brother, but Jeff interrupted him saying, it goes both ways. Like most people know Mark for a TED talk that he gave on, you know, small acts of kindness and, you know, like his, his volunteer firefighting, for instance. But right after that, they go up to Jeff and then they say, hey, I love your TED talk on small acts of kindness and volunteer firefighting. But Jeff just says either thank you, but that was actually my brother, or simply thank you when he's in a hurry. And Jeff Bezos is always in a hurry, though, so it, it's not probably most of the time. I do this a lot myself. Sometimes people hear my music and think they're listening to Kendrick Lamar. I'm just like, thank you. I don't even I don't even say it's just me anymore. The people can find that out themselves, I, I guess. Mark was also like, he's also like, well, <laughs> you've touched levels of fame and success that are difficult to comprehend. I guess what's at the top of everyone's mind is if you had to choose one thing, what's your favorite part about having me as a little brother? <laughs> Jeff said that question is its own answer, basically. They both spent summers in their teens working on their grandparents' ranch in Texas, and what Jeff stresses a lot is how resourceful that taught him and Mark, I guess, to be. In a rural area, when something breaks, you don't pick up the phone and call someone, you just kind of fix it yourself. His grandpa did his own vet work when he would, you know, he would make needles for the cattle, right? He would take a piece of wire, pound it flat, heat it up, drill a hole through it, and make some needle, and some some of the cattle actually even survived. <laughs> but he would take on major projects he didn't know how to do, and then he would just figure out how to do them. They spent a whole summer once repairing a bulldozer uh, once even though like even though it was 5k which is a huge bargain for a bulldozer apparently but a shitload of parts were actually totally fucked up and they had to fix it. Amazon is a great place to fail because they have lots of practice. They had auctions once and there was no one there. Each one they had each one was like a year long the whole project. Then they put the uh, the auctions on their own retail page. So trying new things persistently to figure out what the customer wants and how to get to get it to them is very is very key and Mackenzie, you know, Jeff's wife, said that she would rather have a nine-finger child than one who's not resourceful. So, like, they let their kids use power tools and uh, shit at a very young age. Their kids do, um, just, just, for anyone, anyone who cares, anyone's concerned, their kids do have all their fingers. When Jeff was really busy, he had criteria for which he was looking for a girlfriend or partner, and one of those things he listed, this sounds like something I would write in a list, I mean, I guess it'd be a fun idea to come up with criteria, adjusting it all would be tricky, but standards and balance, I suppose, are definitely important. I've learned, he, he said, he, he wants someone who can get him out of a third world prison, and his friends were like, um, what are your plans for the future? <laughs> but he said, if you're resourceful and you have a team of resourceful people, you can definitely work with those people who can get you out of a third world prison. <laughs> in the 90s, Jeff Jeff would eat very every single morning a whole can of Pillsbury biscuits. He would he would reheat the oven, crack them on there with butter, and three months into their marriage, she, you know, his wife watched him eat it every day, and she eventually asked, "Do you know what's in that?" And that wasn't even a concept to him at the time, like how there are actually things in food. Never read a nutrition label in his life, so she sat him down and went over ingredients and stuff. And he was there in his late twenties when he learned this. He was working and came up with the idea for the company and he had a great job he liked. He liked his boss and his wife was cool with the company idea. She was like, yeah, let's do it. And the boss was like, yeah, um, this is a good idea, but I feel like it'd be better for someone who didn't already have a great job. Jeff spent a few days thinking about it, wondering what his heart said. Like this was more of a personal decision than a business decision, even though business kind of revolved around it. He projected himself then to age 80 and decided to minimize the regrets he had. 20 years later, it's pretty evident that Amazon was a good idea. The paths not taken are often always or always the biggest the ones that lead to the biggest regrets. So it was immediately obvious that it would be a good idea to even just try it. So that's a useful metric for any life decision. 
He said if Amazon hadn't worked out, he'd probably just be a very happy software engineer. He also said he'd be attracted to the field of AI much more, since he's very curious about that anyway as well. He was at the top of his class in high school, and a vast majority of his speech, for some reason, was about colonizing space. <laughs> his closing line was something like, Space, the final frontier, meet me there. Having seen the moon landing kind of, you know, kind of set the tone for that passion when he was very, very young. The reason spaceflight is so expensive is that the rockets are not reusable, so they, and I believe believe uh, SpaceX are putting a lot of emphasis on trying to figure out how to make reusable rockets. A guy once said that all space-bearing civilizations become extinct, and Jeff argues that when the Earth is destroyed, we shouldn't even have all of our eggs in, a ba in one basket, because he hates the Plan B argument, so we have to, we have sent probes to every planet in the solar system, apparently, I didn't know this, and Earth is the best one. Like, nothing comes close. And some of his friends are like, why don't you live in Antarctica for a year before you travel to Mars? He's like, because Antarctica is a garden paradise compared to Mars. Earth is a jewel in the solar system, but if you take baseline energy usage on this planet and compound it for a few hundred years, you have to cover the entire surface of the planet in solar cells, and that's not going to happen. So we have two choices. Either go out into space, or we switch into a civilization of stasis. And that's fucked up, right? Because do you think your grandchildren would rather live in a world where they can continue to develop and flourish and use the things we've enjoyed for hundreds of years in civilization? I do. Stasis, in his opinion, is almost like an illusion, too. Like, he thinks it's, it's, liberty is not even consistent with the idea of it. But in space, we would have trillions of humans in the solar system, and it wouldn't be crowded at all. You could have a thousand Einsteins, a thousand Mozarts, a thousand Da Vinci's. I think that'd be dope. But we have to go to space to save Earth, but we have to do it ASAP, because the civilizations on Earth have gotten so big and evolved so rapidly that we have to hurry. So that's why Jeff Bezos' more important work, his most important work, is Blue Origin. The flight admission fee, by the way, is so high, and he wants to make it practically as easy as fuck for people to start companies there, too. Like, two kids could start Facebook in a dorm room, but not in space. So he wants to make that very possible. Something Mark and Jeff have had conversations about is something I've have I've fallen in love with throughout 2018. Jeff Bezos didn't really introduce me to the idea. It was actually Brian Tracy video, but with time management, Jeff Bezos introduced me to this idea of long-term thinking by really diving into it and giving me this fucking teaser. I think on episode seven, I sampled it in my remix of Cardi B's song "I Like It," which can be a, a link to which can be found in my Instagram bio. But long-term thinking and rolling out your ideas in centuries of time is not something most entrepreneurs would try to do. I mean, I think most entrepreneurs are probably never going to be successful, though they do have what it takes, it is the same thing with rappers, because both of these things are something beco becoming cool to pursue, I suppose. So Jeff finally sheds light a little bit more on long-term thinking. He says it's a, it's a lever you can use to conceive ideas and strategies that you couldn't possibly come up with while thinking short-term. So if he collaborates with someone in the audience and says, look, I want you to solve world hunger, and I want you to do it in five years, and they're like, dude, that's impossible. Then he says, look, I want you to solve it in a hundred years. That's more manageable. Because then you get to create the conditions to solve the problem. So this is a very important way of thinking, and it works with literally everything. If anything has to work in two, year, two to three year time frames, you're limiting yourself to what you can do. If you give yourself the breathing room to say, I'll have seven years to do this, all of a sudden you have way more opportunities. This is very interesting, and it's super contrary to what I have already thought. And adventure to him is more than just some distraction. You get to choose your life story. But your choices define you, define you more than your gifts, and you could be proud of those more than gifts because 
those are decisions you act on. They're done on your own part. It's not some bullshit like, I'm proud to be Irish, or like, I'm proud to be Jewish. <laughs> I mean, I guess Jewish is kind of a decision, but aside, aside from that, like, one of the most important things you could choose is either a life of ease and comfort or a life of service and adventure. And when you're 80, which of those things are you going to be more proud of choosing? You're going to be more proud of a life of service and adventure. Well, I don't know about you, but I am. He said if you're going to invent anything, you have to be a domain expert. But what sucks about being a domain expert is that you can become trapped in that knowledge. I am killing myself over every day over not letting this happen because I spend all my, di- my driving time and working time listening to audiobooks rather than practicing songs or freestyling or anything like that. So you have to have that 10k hours of focus, but also the beginner's mindset. And it's a paradoxical problem for lots of inventors, I suppose. Like, look at it freshly, but know so much about it at the same time. But you're going to have to commit to that. Like, I am going to become an expert, and I am going to be keeping my beginner's mindset. The word fellowship is more powerful to him than friendship because it conjures the idea of traveling down a road together. He teaches, you know, senior executives at Amazon, and he also speaks it to interns and shit, so it's all across the spectrum, ideally. This is something any CEO would be doing, especially with a company like Amazon. He get he always gets questions about work-life balance, and he doesn't even like the term itself. He thinks it's misleading. He prefers to say work-life harmony because... Being energetic at work will let him be energetic at home with ease. And it does, it's about, does your, it's more about like, does your work make you more or less energetic? Most, some people drain energy at work and some people add it. Which one do you want to be? Video two is Steve Jobs and Bill Gates talking together in the interview, D5 2007. This starts off at an Apple event in 1983. Steve Jobs has a software dating game show. Three experts that day were invited to have a panel discussion on software. The first two guys of three introduce themselves, and then there's this kid, this thin kid with glasses going, my name is Bill Gates, I'm the chairman of Microsoft, and during 1984, Microsoft expects to have half of its revenues from Macintosh software. The crowd fucking roared in applause. Steve was like, software CEO number three, when was your first date to Mac- with Macintosh? And Bill said, we've been working with Macintosh for two years now and put some of our really, you know, like, our really good people on it. Steve said, software CEO number three, do you believe the next Macintosh software will set a new standard? Gates went, well, to create a new standard, it takes something a little bit different. It takes something that's really new and really captures people's imagination. And the Macintosh of all the machines I've ever seen is the one that really creates that standard. Steve said, software CEO number three, describe your ideal relationship with Apple. Bill was like, well, we're going to set our software, you know, we're going to sell it independently. So the key thing is that Apple gets a lot of consistent standard machines out there quickly. Someone was like, sorry, Steve, time's up. We'd like to give time to decide today's winner. And then the cheesy game show music plays. (laughs) And then he's like, well, Steve, who's the winner? Steve goes, apples are red. IBM's blue, Mac's gonna be the third milestone, and I need all of you. That's kind of cute, I suppose. These guys had a fascinating relationship. Just watching this makes me want to re-listen to Steve Jobs' biography by, by Walter Isaacson. Like, Steve was seriously an interesting personality. In 1997, at Macworld in Boston, Steve is talking to the company. He goes, Apple is in an ecosystem. It needs to work with other partners. Relationships have to work out. And we're looking, we've looked at relationships recently. One has stood out to have enormous potential despite not, it not going so well. There were some patient 
there were some patent disputes, but they were solved in a very professional way. So he introduces the person who helped most to do these things with Apple. Then Bill, at his own office, just kind of appears on the big screen, and the crowd goes crazy. Steve was a magician. He truly was a magician with these presentations. Bill said that the most exciting work in his career was done with Steve in the Macintosh. He talked about the new software at the time that they were building called Mac Office 98. He said it's going to be more advanced than it was done on than what was done on the Windows platform. They're also excited about Internet, uh, Internet Explorer. The code is really specif specifically <laughs> the code is really specifically developed for Macintosh. It's not meant for the Windows software environment. Steve said afterward that it's all about Apple making incredible contributions to the community, and he's looking forward to it. Now they introduced Steve and Bill to everyone in the crowd, and you know the actual interview part starts. I love the intros that they had. The first question they ask about is what each of them saw the other had contributed to the industry in which they work. Steve said Bill built the first software company in the industry and he, he built it before Apple even knew what a software company was. The business model they had chose for it was great for the industry and Bill was always just focused on software before anybody else had a clue that it was the software. Building a company is really hard and it requires persuasion and hiring the best people so you can do what you're looking to and Bill has been able to do it all those years. Bill said for his answer that first off, he's not the fake Steve Jobs. <laughs> the idea that the Apple computer would be a mass market machine was unique to him. And some days the Mac seemed uh, a little ahead of its time. Uh, Steve added that they both were incredibly lucky to have had great partners that, you know, they started the companies with. And Microsoft started working with them by betting a lot of their future success uh, would come from it. A lot of this stuff is technical stuff. I didn't really take that many notes on it. <laughs> In 1997, a lot of people's heads were still in the place of if Apple has to win, then Microsoft has to lose, and in Apple, and even the customer base, and there were a lot of reasons for it that just didn't really matter to Steve. Apple didn't have to beat Microsoft. Apple just forgot who Apple was, so they had to break that paradigm, and he called Bill up and they patched things up. With the iPod, a lot of these Japanese consumer com computer companies and shit had their MP3 players, but the MP3 players had shitty software. So that's another reason they were looking at Microsoft for Apple, you know, they were looking for Microsoft for help. Apple is known as the company that primarily built everything into that one machine, the hardware and software. People who love software apparently want to do their own software. But Steve quoted some guy, and then Bill's like, um, I don't know, I, I don't really feel that way. Bill said the question is, are there markets where where the innovation and variety you get is a net positive. The negative stage is putting the two together like prototyping and shit, then with the phone market. There were maybe 140 different kinds of hardware. They thought that if they did any themselves, it wouldn't help as much as if they worked with those with those developers. So they loved the platforms and ecosystem around which Microsoft was working. Steve added that it's interesting how the consumer market and the enterprise market are very different places. A lot of artists look at like Tupac and Biggie, and I look at them and I'm like, dude, that's pretty cool. But then artistically, I look at Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and I'm like, whoa, I want to do that type of stuff with music itself, but with the tools they create. Like, Steve loved Google Maps for a while, but then they were making the iPhone, and they were like, hey, let's put maps on the iPhone. So he called Google, and they had experience helping each other, helping other companies with this. Steve also said that a lot of what he called post-PC devices, like MP3 players and phones, a lot of them will be more popular in the future, and they'll integrate the things that computers do. Basically, these will turn into mini-computers. Like, you are probably listening to this on a mini-computer that can fit in your fucking pocket. Your phone is becoming a more and more like a computer, and I don't know. 
I think that's pretty cool. What was interesting to Steve then was all these little apps and things that made life easier in small ways. Apple was partnering with people who know how to do the software, the maps, and everything so they could wrap it all up into one consumer experience. It's really hard for a company to do everything, and so that's the importance of partnerships. Now, Steve is talking about how much of the revolutionary shit in the next five years will be done on post-PC devices instead of PCs, and post-devices like phones and MP3 players, tablets. These were and are like new slates compared to the PCs that now run with all this extra complex software and shit. They were asked what's the greatest misunderstanding between the two of them. Steve sarcastically remarked, well, we've kept our marriage a secret for over a decade now. <laughs> and Bill just kind of sat there for a few seconds and he was like, yeah, I don't think we have anything to complain about. He, he said it's actually nice when people stick around and it's quick for new trends to come up and lots of us hop onto those. But something, someone taking the risk to stay committed to working with someone else, not just, you know, in a personal friendship, but rather a fellowship between companies. That's where a lot of the magic happens over time.